All right, here we go. Um, so we're in week two of Revolution, and last week I had said that really the, my, my main, I, I'm just kind of let the cat out of the bag, I don't know where that came from, but um, kind of the cat out of the bag, the idea of revolution, I've just told you up front, my, my purpose in this, my hope in this, and maybe it's just some, you know, it's an extravagant hope, but I believe that God can do it, that, that something will stir in us on an individual level, that we will have a revolution of our soul, right? Everybody say, my soul. My soul. There will be a revolution in, in my soul and in your soul, in our soul, and in our church. And, and that because of that, that, that now it will reach out to the whole. And that you can apply that to wherever you want, to your workplace, to your family. And, and I had mentioned, even not politically, but, but in our government, that it would seep into our government. Maybe it would seep into the way we vote and, and who we support and who we don't support and the truth that is really even conveyed through our government. The idea of revolution, more, uh, more fitting maybe would be the idea of revival than us as a country. And I'm kind of, to be honest with you, I'm kind of fed up as to what I see on Twitter. I'm fed up to, with, with what I see in the news outlets and I'm fed up with what I see on Facebook and, and all of these things. I'm kind of, I'm just like fed up with what everybody says because they're acting as if God is not on the throne. And I talked about this last week, that we are people who are supposed to be, we're, we are Christians, rather the Christians are supposed to be people of sight, of vision, to see and live out the gospel in our community. And I even mentioned, and maybe it was uncomfortable for some, but you know, then I even kind of said that Christians like live with their, their heads down and just kind of plod through life and they live with, you know, they may have the hope of Christ, but they don't live like it. And I said that Christians need to lift their head up. We need to be people of vision and living out the gospel and seeing the hope of Jesus and that that would be contagious for those that are around us. But we have to be people of vision. And the Bible tells us that, you know, where, where there's vision, that, that there's life and there's hope and divine revelation. And when God speaks into a situation, that hope is found there and that peace is found there. And that, that, that there's this, this stirring in our hearts that not only changes us on an individual level, but also it would change us on a corporate level. Well, part of the, the study for this series, an idea of, of uh, revolution, what I've intentionally done, and I'm not one who necessarily finds, or who used to find this interesting, but what I've kind of noticed is there's this common thread of, of the idea of a biblical morality that's really been woven into our country ever since its founding. And maybe you already know that, and maybe I'm coming to the party a little late, but I'm, I'm starting to see, and I kind of look back at some of the founding fathers, and I kind of see this, this idea of a biblically informed morality has really been woven right through the fabric of our country. Do you all know that church? And yet it's, it's woven in in such a way and yet when I look at, at the media and I look at all different things and I look at even Christians, they live as if there's not a biblically informed morality. They're not living like it. And yet the world, those outside of the faith, they look at Christians and they say, what's the use of being a Christian when you profess to have this hope of Christ but you don't live like it? So it's time for a little revolution, isn't it? It's time for a little stirring in our souls. That the people would around us would, would, would catch what we have to give them, this, this contagious faith, that we would live the hope that we profess. And yet, I'm going to say this question, and I, I kind of mentioned these three ideas last week, and I said that our, our country has been founded on, on really three things. Uh, virtue, value, 
and morality. Y'all remember that? Virtue, value, and morality. And yet, why is it on a national level we can't talk about virtue, value, and morality anymore? Why is that? Why can't we talk about it on a national level? Our very country was founded on this idea of a biblical morality. And yet, we can't talk about it. Because if we talked about it on a national level, we might offend somebody. But all the while, we're not worried about offending Almighty God. What is wrong with that? What is wrong with that? Why is it okay that we want to tiptoe around the truth when it comes to people who need Christ, and yet on a, on a corporate level, all the while we just trample on the very foundation that this country was founded upon? That bothers me. And it should bother you. And yet, there are people like John Witherspoon. Has anyone, just by, raise your hands, have you ever heard of the name John Witherspoon? Got a couple. Good. John Witherspoon is one of the, he's one of the founding fathers. You never really hear about him. You know, you don't, he's really not talked about much in, in mixed company with John Adams and, you know, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and the rest of the crew. You really don't hear about, uh, about John Witherspoon. But John Witherspoon was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and he was also a Presbyterian minister. He was also a Presbyterian minister. And as a matter of fact, this is a quote. This quote will be on the screen. I, I thought this was... Very, very poignant in our time. And it just goes to show you that this idea of a biblically informed life and country and values and the very fabric of which has, has really given us strength as a country was put there intentionally. And it wasn't just incidental, this idea of a biblically informed morality. And this is what he's quoted as saying. A republic, once equally poised, must either preserve its virtue or lose its liberty. Either you, you hold on to this idea of, and the virtue is literally like a high view of morality, you either hang on to this high view of morality, or you will lose your liberty. And I have to be honest with you, church, you may disagree with me, but I see this happening today. I see this happening today. And when I ran across this, this quote, I thought to myself, well, I'd never even heard of this guy before, but then I start to look into it, and I'm like, wow, how poignant for our time. How poignant for our time. That a republic, once equally poised, must either preserve its virtue, its high level of morality, or lose its liberty. Do you think that's true? I think that's true. I think we're seeing this. I think this idea of moral decay is, in essence, it's causing us to lose this idea of liberty and the, the idea of being free. Now, we'll talk about what freedom is um, when we actually get into our text, which is uh, maybe a little bit different than what you previously thought. But this, this idea, it wasn't just in 1776, and you know, we celebrated this week the you know, the independence of our country. It just wasn't there. In 1789, there was the, the Northwest Ordinance that said this. And this is even more incredible for me. This was Congress who put this out. And it says, Religion, morality, and knowledge are necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind. Okay, so this is... Okay, the, the Founding Fathers, it was like this, this radical idea of of liberty and, and, you know, and, and freedom and all of these things and independence and, and, and trying to get away from England and the oppression of the King of England. You have all these things. So now, 13 years later, they come out and Congress, get this, Congress comes out with this statement. 
in this country. How foreign of an idea is it for us in our day and age? And it said religion, that's not just talking about Christianity, that's talking about the freedom of religion. I believe that if we have a platform of freedom of religion in this country, Christianity is the one true faith and it will rise to the top. It is the cream of the crop, it is the standard and all other religions, organized religions, are are really, I think the ones that are actually viewed in the context of Christianity, they'll, they'll be viewed as being worthless, to be honest with you. And yet... In 1789, Congress makes this statement. Religion, morality, and knowledge are necessary to good government and to the happiness of mankind. Wow. If there were three things that are being attacked right now in our culture, it's religion, it's morality, and knowledge. Because if we can take these three things away from our culture, and this isn't... And now, get this. I'm not just talking about who sits in the White House right now. This, this has been in play for decades, okay? I'm talking about a revolution of our soul for Christians to wake up. It has nothing to do with the political party and who you're affiliated with and who you're for, who you're against. It doesn't. This is about Jesus Christ living in and through His church, okay? That's what this is about. But I'm just, I'm warning you to look through the, through the lens of the Christian faith and what we know about the teachings and then also with the very fabric and foundation of our country. And if you put those th- two things together, which are connected, as we see on the screen right now, and Congress themselves knew there was a connection with this high level of morality, with religion, and also with this idea of knowledge, and there's an erosion on a corporate level all across our country. My opinion, maybe not yours, but I see it. I see it no matter what news outlet you watch, no matter what you're exposed to. I see this. They don't want you to have knowledge. There's this oppression of knowledge because if you have knowledge, they understand knowledge is power. And they understand if, I can, if they can have this, this oppression and I can keep you from having to think and just allow somebody else to think for you, then all of a sudden what they say Makes sense, because you're not thinking for yourself. I see this. I'm challenged by this. I think it's time for the church to wake up. To be people of vision. To see not just life in segments, but in, in, the, in the wholeness of what's going on around us. And this erosion of morality and religion and even knowledge. And our very own Congress told us in 1789, one of the things maybe you don't know about this, but also speaking into the foundation of our country, there was this phrase that existed in England before uh, our, our country was liberated here. And there was this, this phrase that went around England, it's a Latin term, and it, it says rex lex, and it meant the king the law, the king the law. And in England, that's what everybody said, the king the law. Everybody bows down to the king, you know, It's the king's the law. No matter what the king says, that's exactly what happens. The king is the law. The king, the law. The king, the law. And as a matter of fact, when when the founding fathers to come over here and then kind of decided to try this experiment called democracy, and they came here, they switched that around to where now it was the law of the king. The law of the king. Instead of the king, the law. So they knew even, even in the foundation and the very fabric and the, the, the building of our country that the law, 
This idea of the law, which was given by Almighty God, had to be the king. In other words, it had to be the authority over everything else that happens in our country. That it couldn't be government down. It had to be God down. And that was kind of a a rallying cry when the Founding Fathers came over this idea of the law of the king, the law of the king, the law of the king. And now, there's a twisting. To where now you don't know who's in charge, do you? Is the king the law? Is Congress the law? Is the president the law? Is the whatever the law? And yet, Christians, wake up. It's time for revolution of your soul. It's time to start seeing things as they really are. It's time to start really adhering your life to the teachings in the Word of God. Either Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, or He's not in your life. You can't have a little bit of Jesus and be okay. He's either all or nothing in your life. And a call of of revolution is not a call to arms. It's a call to a deepening your spiritual walk with Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. It's not about your, about your government and being upset with who, your government and all these things. Don't misunderstand me. It's about a challenge in your heart to step it up. Do the next right thing, Christian. Do the next right thing. Whatever it is that God has put before you, do it. And do it well. Do it to the glory of God. That's what it's about. It's about students going to camp and asking some, maybe some tough questions of the faith and responding to the Lord Jesus in a unique way when teachings are put out there that are challenging for them and they submit to the authority of the Word of God and they, they submit to the authority of the person who's speaking truth over them and they say, you know what, maybe I'm not doing everything the way that I should. And it's a challenge. It's an idea of revolution. It's a matter of turning things around in their life. Maybe their hearts just boom, boom, boom. And it's just on life support. And maybe it's, it's a call to vitality where the heart just needs a, a jump start. Maybe it's, it's just, maybe just doing the next right thing. Maybe it's obeying. Maybe, it's, maybe it's, it's adults. Maybe it's just them working to the glory of God. Raising their kids to the glory of God. Loving their husband and wife to the glory of God. It's not that difficult. It's lived out every single day. If you want there to be a change in the world, it needs to start in your world first. It has to. If you have your Bibles, go to Luke 15. Luke 15, starting in verse 11. I'll tell you this. There's a a danger with teaching through a text like today. Because if you've been in church a while, you've probably heard this message, you've heard this text being taught two or three times. And my hope for you, and it has been all week long, I've been processing this all week long, my hope for you is that you would see this text with a fresh lens. That you would see it, not thinking, oh my goodness, I've heard this taught so many times, but that you would see it and that you would really, really respond to the Holy Spirit's prompting in your life through this text. There's a verse I want to share with you before we jump into our key text. And this is Hebrews 4.12. It says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 
It continues in verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. The Word of God, even though it may be a verse that you've heard many times, it is still living and active. It is still sharp. It still cuts to the core of you. It still can challenge your thoughts and attitudes and your condition of your heart. It can challenge everything. So receive this word today as if it was the very first time that you've heard it. Luke 15, verse 11. I'll kind of set it up just a little bit. The audience, Jesus is teaching, and the audience you actually see at the beginning of verse 15. And I'll just read it, uh, verse 1 and 2. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear him. So here's part of the audience. Tax collectors and sinners. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So you see, in the audience of Jesus' teachings here, I want to give you the context, in, because it's very important, we'll get to it in just a minute. The context here is tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, and teachers of the law. And the point of this, of this text, is Jesus is going to basically do a compare and contrast with those two groups. Verse 11 starts like this. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, The younger son got together all he had and he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So now you see this this father. There's three main characters in the story. The father, the younger son, and older son. So the father is just like living his life and everything's fine, the younger son comes up and he says, you know what, I think there's something bigger and better in this distant land. I want to take my, my, my estate, I want to take my wealth, the thing that, that I'm, I'm really kind of due to have, at least he claims, and he says, Father, can I have that? I want that. And he receives it. And he got together all he had. And he set off for a distant country. And then there, there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after, verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. You see, he didn't realize he was in need until he had lost everything that he had had. He didn't wake up until he realized that he was broke. See, Christians today... The reason, one of the reasons why we, we don't realize there's a, a deeper need for God is because you're not broke yet. Because you're not broken yet. You're still trying to do it yourself still. You're still you think you have the answers and you haven't fully been broken. I just want you to know, and this is, I see a movement of God happening in our church. And I've seen this specifically over the last week. And He's breaking people. And you know what they're realizing? I don't have all the answers. And that's okay. Because they're trusting God in a deeper way. And that is true freedom, church. That's true freedom. When you don't, or rather when you realize you don't have all the answers and you can't fix it yourself. So he began to be in need because he was broke. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Still trying to fix it himself, isn't he? He's broke. He's lost it. 
He's got nothing. As a matter of fact, now he has a little bit less than nothing because not only does he not have any wealth, he has no, no dinero, no money, he's got none of that. He's also, he has removed himself from his support system, so he has even less. So now he's in a foreign land, and now he's longing to eat the slop that the pigs are eating, and yet no one is helping him. So he's removed himself from his support system. Yet there's a transition that happens in verse 17. And this is what I believe Christians in this very country need to do. Look at the beginning of verse 17. What does it say? When he came to his senses. When he came to his senses. When he stopped for a moment and realized, you know what, I've made a lot of mistakes. When he came to the point in his life where he realized that he was broken. You see, he was broke before he was broken. Same thing happened in my life. I, I had to be broke before, or rather, I, I, I was broke, but then I realized that I was broken before God. And then I realized that He was the one for the mending. It's the same thing that happens here. You see, He's broke, but then right after that, He realizes that He's truly broken. And it says in verse 17 that He came to His senses. Christians, we need to come to our, we need to come to our senses. We need to realize that we don't have all the answers. We need to realize that trusting Jesus is not only the way, it's the only way. But we need to come to our senses. We need to wake up. We need to be people of vision. It says, how many of my fathers, verse 17, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But I love this picture. Love this picture. But while he was still a long way off, I just have this vision of him coming up the road. He's coming back home. He's coming back to the father. But he's still a long way off. But look what the father does. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He was filled with compassion. So he saw him. And yet his, his first response when he looks at his son who was wayward, who was broke and broken before God, and after he came to a census and he's deciding, I need to come back home, I don't have all the answers. His first response, the father's response was compassion, not judgment. It was compassion. It was love, not judgment. He didn't sit back and look at his son. Well, you know what? You made your bed, now you get to lay in it. You've made a mess of this yourself. You're stuck with it. He looks at his son, because he loves his son, and he responds with compassion. And it says, not only that, what did he do? He ran to his son. And he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. So not only, did he, not only did he look at his son as he's coming up the road, the father looked upon compassion, but he was so moved. He's like, my, my son is finally coming back home. My son is finally coming back home. I knew this day was going to come. I knew this day was going to come. And he runs to meet his son. And he runs to meet him. And I love how, how Jesus captured that in this teaching. How many of you have been wayward sons or daughters? 
How many of you have, have been sons or daughters where you started out, maybe you received Jesus, and then there was a time in your life where you just said, you know what, I'm checking out, I'm doing this all by myself, I got this taken care of, I accept you as Savior, I know I'm not going to hell now, but I still want to be the Lord of my life. You know, there is a difference. And the difference is truly trusting in Jesus. How many of you have been there? This son who, who received Jesus and, and you know, you know, loved the Father for a bit and then decided, you know what, I'm going to go, go do life all by myself. I'm going to go squander whatever this inheritance that I've had by Lord Jesus. I'm just going to go do it myself. And yet, there was a point where you were broke, but then also you realized, you realized that you were broken and then you came back home. And how good did it feel when the Heavenly Father said, I accept you as son or daughter? I want to tell you, I bet even people in this room or maybe people who would hear this message, you're still running. You're still, you're still a long way from home and you just bolted. Somebody said something to you. Maybe it was somebody who stood on a stage like this, said something you didn't like, and you just bolted. And you just took off and you said, you know what, I'm just going through the motions right now. I'm just punching the ticket. I'm just here because, you know, it's Sunday and if not, everybody's going to call me and it's going to get weird. I don't know why you're here, but I, I, all I do know is you can only run for so long. You can only run for so long. And how about you just stop the games? How about you just stop playing the game? Stop pretending you have all the answers. Just come back home. Just come back. Because I believe your Heavenly Father would respond to you with compassion. And not only will He just say, well, you need to come to me, child. I believe that He'll meet you where you are. That's what He did in my life. Verse 21. The son said to him, the, the son's response back to the father. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and, or and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. So the son takes responsibility before the father. The son takes responsibility. He says, I have sinned. It's my responsibility. I'm messed up. I've done this wrong. See, that's what we need to do, Christians. In, in our culture, and I mentioned all these things, government, and how we're formed and all that, we need to take some responsibility and not point fingers to everybody else, but we need to point fingers to ourselves and say, you know what, I can't change everybody else, but I can allow the Lord Jesus to change me. Because the revolution must happen in your soul before it will gravitate to the whole. It has to happen in your soul and in my soul. On an individual level. Verse 22, But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again, and he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Some things I want to just point out from this text. In verse 22, he says, Bring out the best robe. This was symbolic of the, of the protection of the father. So this literally says, put on the best, on this, this robe in their culture. That would have meant a lot more than what it does in ours. When you put a robe on somebody, it was a symbol of, of protection. Kind of like with, 
Ruth and Boaz, we talked about this a couple months ago, when, when Boaz, he put the cover over Ruth, it was symbolic, saying, you're under my protection now. This is the same thing that's kind of shown here through Jesus' teaching. He puts the robe and he says, now you're under my protection. You're not all alone anymore. I know you were broke, I know you were broken, but now you're back. You're home. And now you can be whole. And then also there's the... the idea of putting a ring on his finger, this idea of signet ring, it meant authority. He's saying, no, you're not just under my protection. I'm also giving you some authority in the family now. I'm welcoming you back in the family. You're not just some, some unwanted stepchild here. Like, you're the real deal. You're like, you're my son. I love you. You're my daughter. I love you. You're back. I'm giving you a place in the family. Then there was the idea of sandals. And the reason why the sandals are so important are because slaves walked around barefoot. And if you were a, a slave because you owed somebody money or whatever, they were barefoot. So when the father says, put some sandals on his feet, that was a way of saying, you're not a slave to sin anymore. You're not a slave to the, the wondering anymore. I put sandals on your feet because I accept you, because you're my son, because I love you. Of course, it's not hard to get, in verse 23, bring the fattened calf and kill it. This is a time of celebration. That this was a time of feasting and inviting everybody in. And this is a celebration. My son was gone and now he's back. Let's celebrate. And then we also see as the father is, is doing all this and there's this celebration. There's a transition that happens in verse 25. First I want to just kind of jump out there and, and tell you this. The, the symbolism in this text, the younger son... It's, a, it's basically symbolized when Jesus' initial teachings were for the tax collectors and sinners. So the, the audience that I, I had told you were the tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, and teachers of the law. So when Jesus is, is teaching this parable, the initial response in his initial audience, the younger son, he was speaking directly into the tax collectors and sinners. And he's saying, you know what, yeah, you, you were, you know... You've just kind of gone off and you're doing your own thing right now and you're far away from the Father. And, he, and Jesus is wanting to draw them in and trying to help them to understand. Now how that connects uh, with us, there's both a, a personal application and then also a corporate application. Because the younger son, he's the one who started out pretty well. There was the same amount of, of blessings both the sons that are illustrated here had the level of freedom. They both had the same potential. They both lived in the, the same home. They were, both, they were going to be given the same inheritance. They started out the exact same way. This idea of freedom in, in this, this younger son, when he left, he was free to do whatever he wanted to do. And yet, we see that he squandered it. In our country... There, there's something for us. We have this idea of we've, we started rich. I'm not talking monetarily. I'm talking about rich in, in morals and values and virtue in our country. And we started rich in this idea of being enlightened by the gospel. And that's what we had. We've never been a Christian nation. That's not what I'm proposing here. But I'm saying that we were a country that, was, had, that has had this idea of a biblical morality woven in and through it since the founding of this very country. And yet the, son, the younger son is, is this group within our country even, on a corporate level, who has maybe been, had the same opportunity. 
the same blessing. And now we're using this freedom to do whatever we want to do. Yet the Word of God warns us not to do that in 1 Peter 2.16. says this, Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. So, on a personal level, we don't live as slaves to sin. We can be free of sin in our life. I'm not talking about a level of perfection. You won't reach perfection until you meet Jesus face to face. And then you will be fully sanctified. That's the, the $5 you know, theological word for that. That you would be set apart. Right now, you're in the process of being set apart. You're not perfect. You know you're not perfect. And yet, as you, you live your life and you take, you take steps and you do the next right thing, it is God setting you apart for His service and you will not be perfected until we leave this earth. And yet, while we're here, we adhere to scriptures like this, that we're supposed to live like free men and women, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. You see, we live in a free country, don't we? We live in a free country where we can go and we can kind of do all kinds of things. And yet, don't use that freedom as a cover-up for evil. Just because we can, in this country, we can go look at things on the internet, and we can surf the internet, and you can surf whatever you want. It doesn't mean that men specifically, it doesn't mean that you can go look at pornography. You're not free to do that, because that is evil. We live in a free country. Just because you can go out and you can have a meal with somebody of the opposite sex, doesn't mean that you should. Don't use your freedom that we have in this country as a cover-up for evil. Don't do it. Yet we're free. You can walk. You can talk. You can walk the streets. You can drive from coast to coast. But don't don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. The Lord Jesus, as we just said in Hebrews 4.12, He knows your thoughts. He knows the true desires of your heart. Don't be foolish. Yes, we're free. But we're free to live our life in this country and to live a life of where we, where we can have the level of happiness and contentedness. But the true founding of this country had to, had to do with the truths that are found in this book and in these really 66 books held in our Bible and probably in your hand right now. Don't use it as a cover-up for evil the freedom that we have. Yet there's another uh, part of this in verse 25. I'm going to read the rest of this text. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brothers, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because... He has him back. He has him back, safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill a fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
You see, initially what Jesus is speaking into, he's speaking into the Pharisees and the religious leaders who are questioning him. Because just as the older brother, he set back as, as the self-righteous one. He set back as the self-righteous one, or rather, in this, in this story, the, the, old, rather the, yes, the older brother was the self-righteous one. And he was the one who had it all figured out. And he says, I've been doing all these things morally right. I'm, I'm, I'm basically the, pinna- the pinnacle of morality here. And yet all of a sudden my younger brother comes back. He spends some time with prostitutes. And now we're going to kill the fattened calf. Or we're going to spend all this money on him. He says, I've been, I've been doing the right thing. I'm the self-righteous one. And he's puffing himself. Every time he says this, he's puffing himself up. He's not puffing the Lord up. He's not exalting the Lord Jesus. He's puffing himself up. And he says, I've been doing all these things right. And yet... Jesus' immediate audience were the religious elite and the Pharisees because they would have said the same thing. They were the ones who didn't accept other people into the faith because they thought they had it all together. And they did not respond in love. The older brother is not shown as, as responding in love to his younger brother. He responds with self-righteousness. And if I'm honest, I see a lot of self-righteousness in Christians today. I see a lot of self-righteousness that are really personified in this parable by the older brother. Self-righteous Christians where we sat back and said, yeah, you know what? This country was founded on a biblical morality and you're just taking it away and yet it's, it's just it's erosion, it's, it's slow and steady and we see it and we're not the country we used to be and I see a lot of Christians become self-righteous and they start to, to build their own pulpits and their, their voices are getting a little bit louder and yet they're withdrawing themselves away from the culture when the Lord Jesus would not want us to do that. The older brother, what did he do? He removed himself from the younger brother he didn't celebrate when the younger brother came back to the lord did he did he church he didn't he withdrew and yet a self-righteous christian in our culture withdraws and i believe the lord jesus would want us to engage a culture and say you know what i want to help you sinner i want to help you sinner i remember i did the exact same thing as you and i i was freed by the love of jesus and i i remember the day that i received the grace of the lord jesus and i want to i want to just help you in the process you see that's what christians are supposed to do they're supposed to help people up and not push them down Christians are supposed to be lifting and not pushing as if we have all the answers. Because if we're honest, we don't have any answers outside of Jesus Christ. Do we? So we can't live as if we are the moral authority. Because then we're the self-righteous older brother. We have to live like Jesus has all authority. Not just on a corporate level. Don't point fingers. It's on a personal level. But first we have to come to our senses. We have to understand. We have to have a level of awareness. You know, I don't know why in this country, by the way, I've served our country. I served the country for four years. 
I love our country. There's no other place. I've gone to different countries. And out of all the places that I've gone, I've had some fun. I've had not so much fun in other countries. I would not want to live in any other country than this one in this time. I believe that we are an incredibly blessed nation. And by this idea of, of revolution, it's, um, it's not me you know, thumbing my nose at everything that's going on. I still believe that, that we are and we can be a blessed nation. But I think it's time that Christians wake up. That they become people of vision that they understand that there's a lot of things at stake here if we don't stand up. And that if, if we don't allow this idea of revival to start stirring in our hearts, that there will be such a rapid moral decline in our country, and I don't know if we'll ever get it back. But now's the time to come to our senses. And yet, we have to have this idea of awareness. And I don't know why in, in our country, I don't know why it is, but things have to get so bad before people actually look up to God. Do you remember September 11th? Do you remember that? I remember September 11th, and I remember just this, this outpouring in response, and I realized that, it's, that it was a, a tragic and terrible thing and an incredible loss of life, and it just it moves my heart. I'm still moved just talking about it and thinking about it. Because I remember on that day, maybe any other day, more than any other day in my life, how we are so desperate for God. How we're so desperate. And yet, why is it that we have to go through a tragedy to wake up? Why is it that things have to get so difficult in your life before you wake up? Why is it that you have to be so broke and so broken just to wake up? To come to your senses, like it says in verse 17. Why is that? What would happen today, church, if you just woke up? That you lived with this awareness in your life to say, you know what? I need to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ because He is the Lord of Lords and He is the King of Kings. And He will never be that in our country if He's not first that in our hearts, in our lives, in our decision making, in our words. It starts with us. Yet we, we had a reminder of this at the, at the 10th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. And President Obama, he quoted this scripture. Psalm 46, verse 1. He said, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Though I have to be honest with you, I, I was kind of challenged when all of this happened because there, there was no clergy allowed at that event. None. That kind of bothers me. Because I think probably <laughs> the day on September 11th in 2001, when that happened and, and the, the tragedy and just as it's going all across the country, across the world, it's just, I mean, everything, it just seems like everything is in chaos. There were probably more people praying to maybe the God that they know or don't know on that day than my whole life. And yet, why in the world wouldn't there be some clergy invited there? I don't understand that. But at least he read this scripture. And he says that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. But you know what? I believe this verse to be true. But I also believe that God wants to be your refuge and strength even when you're not in trouble. He wants to be your refuge and strength at all times. We have to have this awareness in our life to where we, we start to think 
to truly think that we're not just living for ourselves. Because if you're a Christian, if you're a redeemed Christian, you are a blood-bought Christian, you're not just living your life for yourself. You are supposed to be submitting and living under the authority of Jesus Christ, living your life for Him. Living in the world for Him. It changes everything. And yet He is... He is our refuge and our strength. But why is it that things have to get so bad before we acknowledge it? I think there are three reasons. They all begin with P. It's very Baptist of me, I understand. But three reasons why we wait for things to get bad before we actually look up to God. There's three things. They won't be on the screen. You just have to listen. First one is power. We have a very powerful country. And really, even as people, we're empowered to do certain things. Like I said, we can go coast to coast. We, we live in, in an empowered country and in a powerful country. And I think the, the, very, the very power that is possessed in our country is also a deterrent from accepting the Lord Jesus. Because we start to think to ourselves, you know what? We live in the best country in, in the history of the world. And yet we live in this place. And I'm empowered. Maybe as a Christian and as a citizen of the United States. I'm empowered. So all of a sudden this power goes to our head. And we start thinking that we can do a little bit more than what we actually can. So the first thing that attacks us. Is the idea of power. The second one is our possessions. We start to rely too heavily on our possessions. As a matter of fact, Proverbs talk about that. I want to share this proverb with you. Proverbs 30, verse 7 through 9. I'm going to go through it quick. You may want to write it down. You may not have time to flip there. But Proverbs 30, uh, verse 7 says this. Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. And get this, it says, Give me neither poverty, poverty nor riches, but only give me my daily bread. And the reason why is in the next verse. He says, Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? See, we live in a country right now where we have so many possessions, and because we have all these possessions, whether if you may not think that you're wealthy, but we're all wealthy. Like if a person who, who you know, is, it seems like they're just destitute in this country is wealthy as compared to other places of the world, places that I've seen. And because this, this idea of possessions, and I love what the author of Proverbs says right here. He says, Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, Who's the Lord? That's exactly what's happening in our country right now. We're saying, who's the Lord? We don't, we don't need the Lord. I've got stuff. I've got possessions. I've got a big house. I've got two cars. I've got a fenced-in yard. I've got a dog. You know, I've got all these things. I'm living the American dream. I can work. And yet we've, we start to rely on these possessions. And if we're honest, there's probably been a time in your life where you've maybe not said it verbally, but, but you've lived this out. Who's the Lord? Who's the Lord? I mean, look at us. We're so, we're so powerful. We have all these things. In our country, we have all these things. We have all this military might and, you know, sea to shining sea. And we have all these things. And we have so many possessions. And I just wonder if we don't just have possessions, but those possessions have us. I just wonder. And I just wonder 
on a personal level when we just need to sit back and say, you know what? Maybe I'm trusting the things that God has blessed me with rather than the God who's blessed me with things. The last one is pride. And I could teach on this for the next year. But this idea of pride. Another proverb says, pride comes before the, what is it? the fall. Pride comes before the fall. Because pride says, you know what? I'm the self-righteous one. I got it figured out. It's good. It's good. No, 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 no. I got it taken care of. It's good. I don't need your help. No, we live in a country. I don't need your help. Everything's good. It's good. I'm blessed. I've got stuff. And you know, I, I mean, I have, I, just ha- I have so much stuff that I don't even know where to put all my stuff. I've just got so much stuff. I'm blessed. I've got possessions. Uh, we're a powerful country. We've got tanks. We've got airplanes. We've got aircraft carriers. We've got all these things. We've got all this money. And I wonder if all of those things haven't led to us of resting on our pride about the things that we have and the place that we live. Maybe we just need to come back and say, God, you are my refuge. Please be my strength. Here's what I believe. I believe on a personal level, I believe that your life will be more blessed the more you rely on God. Because what what I found and from counseling people in my own life is God will allow me just to kind of do my own thing. If I, if I keep him out of the equation, a lot of times he can do that. And I can be the younger son and I can, I can take my stuff and I'm, I'm blessed and I've got all this. And you know what? There's been times in my life where God's just said, you know what? Go get him, son. And I vanished. And I've kind of gone out and done my own thing. And there's been times where he's let me do that and I believe he would let you do that. And yet... He doesn't just do it to cast you away. He does it because he's he's sitting at the end of the road with his hands out and he's like, come back home, come back home. I wonder how many of us, we're just settling for eating pig slop when we could be having some filet mignon. I wonder. I believe with all of me, that God can move in this church. I believe that He will move in this church. I see Him moving in this church. And I believe that, that the movement of God will be experienced in our community as it happens in you. I'm going to close this in prayer. And as I pray, I just want you to kind of, you can pray your own prayer. You don't have to pray the same thing that I pray. But I just want you to sit back and say, you know what? Am I the younger son? Have I squandered everything the Lord Jesus has given me? Am I the older son? Am I the self-righteous Christian who thinks, you know what, I'm, I'm removing myself from everybody else. I want you to ask the question. 